You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, Today is Tuesday the 4th of August and it's just become 7am. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. You know, I get confused between all the months. Sorry, I shouldn't probably admit this on radio, but I get confused between all the months that have a similar sounding first syllable. So March and May, June and July, August and October. Um, Constantly. I do it at work. It's it's disastrous. I've missed flights because of it. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Um, It is Tuesday, the 4th of October, 2022. And... um, I am joined in the studio today with uh, Fung and Jasmine. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. I have to admit, I'm still adjusting to the daylight saving. Yeah, um, but how nice this morning. It was really, yeah, it is really beautiful. Yeah, and yesterday was really lovely. Mm. So really looking forward to spring. Although hopefully neither of you have hay fever. Of course I have hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Definitely do. And actually, I was reading last night, um, apparently hay fever, the culprit is introduced species, a yes. lot of introduced grass. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. It's not native it, native plants that affect. Was it the conversation, I think, posted yeah. about it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. I did see that. Anyway, mm. typical. Absolutely. Just another, yeah, yeah something else that colonisation has Bloody hay brought fever. upon us. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, so we've got a big show today. Um, what have we got coming up first? For? So we're going to replay a really interesting conversation that Annie from Solidar- Solidarity Breakfast had with Lauren Perry from UTS. Um, uh, she recently co-authored a recent report called uh, Re- Facial Recognition Technology Towards a Model Law. So they discuss the use of facial recognition technologies at various stores. I'm sure people will have seen them at, they have those cameras now at the self checkouts. Um, So yeah, discussing what are the issues um, uh, associated with this use of technology, um, especially when it comes to the rights of individual citizens. Uh, And then after that, um, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Tina Grandinetti, who spoke at the Forum for D- Dwelling Justice that took place not that long ago here in Nam. Um, so Dr. Tina Grandinetti um, talks about the effect of the military, environmental and settler colonialism um, on Hawaii. Uh, and then at 8 o'clock, uh, we'll be speaking with Auntie Sue Coleman-Hasseldean, who is a Kokata woman who lives in Sejuna in South Australia. She's a nuclear test survivor and outspoken advocate of 
um, Aboriginal culture and environmental protection. So she'll be um, talking to us this morning about nuclear testing on her country and other testing um, going on there at the moment. Uh, and then we'll follow up with uh, an interview with Caitlin McGrain, um, who is project manager at Gender Equity Victoria and PhD candidate at the Digital and Ethnography Research Centre. Um, Caitlin will be talking to us about defining equity, um, GenVic's annual conference where local and global experts come together to talk about how to create lasting change in gender equity. So we've got a big show coming up and we will be right back after this message. <coughs> Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. The news headlines for this morning. Uh, we have some local news from Mooney Ponds. Uh, it's been reported that there has been evidence of police protecting a neo-Nazi protest in Mooney Ponds at a youth festival. Um, reports, which are primarily on social media and not being reported in any mainstream media, um, show videos and photo evidence of protesters chanting anti-Semitic rhetoric and performing Hitler salutes while... Um, calling a drag performer a demon, um, amongst other really harmful um, slurs and uh, chants and language in general. Um, the police justified defending the event by saying it was a quote-unquote peaceful protest. Um, and with very little media coverage, only very small media outlets, primarily on social media, are covering any part of this and calling the police out by saying that their actions are actually emboldening hate groups and allowing them to practice hate speech, um, which harms many communities and minorities. Kakadu Uranium site cleanup in limbo amid calls to revive the mine. The Guardian has reported that funding for the multi-billion dollar cleanup for the Ranger Uranium mine carved out of the Kakadu National Park in the Northern Territory has been thrown into limbo due to a corporate stoush over attempts to revive mining in the area. Ranger mine owners' minority shareholders are pushing for further development. Rio Tinto, the majority shareholder in Energy Resources Australia, which owns the tapped-out Ranger Mine and the neighbouring Jabaluka deposit, says it wants to fund the clean-up of the Ranger Mine and will not develop Jabaluka without the consent of traditional owners. The Mirar people whose lands cover both mining leases are adamantly opposed to any further mining. And I'm sure, as you've heard on 3CR in the last few days across our shows, Disrupt Land Forces is happening from October fourth to the sixth um 
sorry, is happening to oppose land forces from October 4th to the 6th, which is the largest weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. It's being held in the Brisbane Convention Centre. Um, and to oppose this event, a broad coalition of feminist, First Nations, climate, refugee and peace groups have formed to hold a week of creative nonviolent events and actions. Um, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance launched at the Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy in Musgrave Park on the 30th of September and will run a full week of activities. Um, and it's been convened by Wage Peace, a nonviolent network of activists opposing the arms trade. So if you want any more information on that, you can go to disruptlandforces.org. Uh, and we'll be um, bringing you content related to um, Disrupt Land Forces every morning this week at around 8am. So stay tuned to 3CR Breakfast and also across to other shows because um, we'll be doing live crosses and, and other um, interviews with people who are currently there and if you wanted to keep up to date with um, all the peaceful protests and um, things that are happening there you can also follow their Instagram uh, at disrupt wars they post um, frequent updates from the event in Mianjin and yeah follow along definitely uh, next up we are going to play you a song uh, this is called Everyone's Everybody's Gone to War by Narina Pallet, who is an English singer-songwriter. I got a friend is a pure brick killing machine. He said he's waited his whole damn life for this. He's a man who'll be dead by Christmas and so Everybody's going to war Well, we don't know what we're fighting for Don't tell me it's a worthy cause No cause could be so worthy Love is a drug, I guess we're all sober If hope is a song, I guess it's all over Hide our faith when faith is a crime I don't want to God's on our side, thank God he's a joker Asleep on the job, his children fall over Running out through the door, and straight to the sky I don't want to die For every man who wants to rule the world There'll be a man who just wants to be free What do we learn, or what should not be learned Too late to find a cure for this disease, so So worthy of love is a drug, I guess we're all sober. If hope is a song, I guess it's all over. I have faith when faith is a crime, I don't want to die. If God's on our side, then God is a joker. Asleep on the job, his children fall over, running out through the door, and straight to the sky, I don't want to. Don't wanna die 
That was Narina Pallet with Everybody's Gone to War. Um, and we'll be back with our first um, interview after this message. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're now going to replay for you a really interesting discussion that Annie from Solidarity Breakfast had with Lauren Perry from UTS, who's a co-author of a recent report called Facial Recognition Technology. They discuss the issues that place this sort of technology against citizens' rights. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR Saturday Breakfast Show. We are going to go and find out a little bit about the stuff that's going on with facial recognition technology. Now, it was really quite mind-blowing to realise that Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows were scanning all the people coming into their shop uh, without, you know, (laughs) people being given the okay about uh, such things because there's a whole lot of aspects to facial recognition technology which puts a whole range of things into consideration you know, mass surveillance, that sort of stuff. And it might lead to efficiencies, which uh, is great for uh, some people. But uh, on the other hand, what are the things that are at stake? So I got to speak to Lauren Perry. She's from UTS, that's the University of Technology, Sydney, about a recent report that they've put together and the model law that they think is a good idea to uh, curtail any of the less than savoury aspects of the use of facial recognition technology. So here she is. There was a very interesting campaign that's been put forward by Choice around the announcement that Bunnings, Kmart and uh, Goodfellows wants to use facial recognition technology. That brings up a whole range of issues, doesn't it? This whole concept of uh, privacy and uh, other kind of freedoms that people might find quite challenging. 
you use that uh, as one of the papers that challenge that cho choices put forward as uh, as part of your analysis of the need for legislation or rules around facial recognition use. Can you talk to us about that kind of everyday situation that would confront uh, Australian citizens? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um, the thing that you know is, is most common when you talk to um, Australians and people in the street about facial recognition is that I guess up until this this choice investigation, most people are really just thinking about using facial recognition to unlock their smartphone or perhaps their their work device um, in order for that that convenience factor. A lot of people up until this investigation didn't realise just how many other uh, businesses or um, or shopping centres or even law enforcement are using facial recognition in other ways, you know, from a, um, a security perspective um, and those sorts of things that raise really significant concerns for privacy, particularly um, in the absence of any legal protections specifically in Australia around facial recognition technology. Now, there's some ideas around uh, uh, the uh, the usefulness of um, uh, facial recognition. Can you talk to us about why uh, it's considered to be useful? Yeah, so I guess um, similar to some of the the um, context, I was just saying that that it can be really quick and simple. Instead of having to remember a lot of different passwords on your own personal devices. Um, if you're the one that's programmed, you know, your smartphone to unlock with your face, then then you've got that choice and you've got that control and you've got that ease of access. Um, additionally, there's some other really, um, really positive uses of facial recognition being trialled, like to find missing children or in other humanitarian circumstances. Um, I know it was trialled at, at, um, in some different places during the bushfires in Australia for people who had lost legal documents in, in the fire that, that they could have their identity verified through facial recognition. Um, and even for people with disability, we can see that um, that some types of facial analysis can be really useful to identify emotions in friends around them, potentially if they're blind or if they have a vision impairment. So there are some really positive and innovative uses of this technology, um, but and we want to balance that innovation whilst protecting from the potential harms of other uses. We probably should go through the difference between facial verification, facial analysis and facial detection. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, that, no, that's right. So in our model law report, we, we try to, I guess, um, create a bit of a discussion around these three different types of facial recognition because they are quite different. So as, as you've just said, um, we've got uh, facial verification, which is what some people call one-to-one. -one. So that's what you'd use on your on your smartphone where your phone has a stored um, blueprint of your face and, and, and just your face. And when you open it um, or, or use your face to open your phone, it's just matching against the picture of yourself. So that's the verification. Um, and and that's, just, that, that's the same for pass passports, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in different contexts, when you're, you know, at, at the smart gate, um, and they're they're checking against your passport photo and your face uh, when you're walking through. Yeah. And the other one, uh... the second type. Yeah, yeah. The second type of of um, facial recognition um, we call facial identification. So that's 
what can also be called one-to-many. So um, potentially the police might have a photo of um, someone who's committed a crime or someone who's stolen something, and they're matching that face against a huge database of other faces of other potential suspects. So uh, naturally the risks there increase because you're bringing in a whole lot of other different identities um, into the field there. And then I guess the third case, that's right, yes. Yeah, so, so analysis is really interesting and it, it's really experimental, uh, experimental as well still. Um, this is where the face recognition technology is actually trying to infer um, something about you because of what it can see in your face. So that might be, you know, your gender or your age. It might be able to, um, you know, analyse uh, your racial background or even things like emotions. And so there's there's a lot of concern because this technology is quite um, quite basic and, and definitely not proven. And it's also quite uh, error prone for people who are from different racial backgrounds, um, who, people who have disability as well. So that's a that's an area that we're quite concerned about. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, uh, the thing about uh, com- using computers to come up with uh, outcomes in this way, uh, people feel that uh, they, they are, um, what is it, uh, can't be challenged because they're, they're not human, they're better than human, as it were, in analysing things. But actually there are elements around uh, this technology which um, make it not foolproof. It's not foolproof at all. Yeah, that's right, Annie. So um, what what you were kind of describing there is is a a term some people use, uh, technology deference where people go, oh, but it's a computer, it's a, an algorithm that's making this, um, you know, this analysis or this decision and therefore it has to be right. But um, as we know, when you, when you stop to think about it, well, actually all computer programs and algorithms and, and facial recognition systems are developed by humans and, you know, humans are, are fallible as well and, and systems, you know, improve and develop over time, but they're definitely not always accurate. And so it is really important um, that we start having conversations around, um, you know, how data is being tested or where it's being, um, you know, accrued from that inform these these um, complex decision-making systems. Yeah, and you found, uh, looking at all this documentation from across the world, that uh, despite the fact that the... Um, uh, algorithms and the software are increasingly becoming uh, more sophisticated, uh, they still have uh, particular uh, uh, problems with uh, women, uh, people of colour and disability, people with disability. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because that correlates with people who often are discriminated in our society. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a really um, uh, sad truth actually that, that some of these technologies such as facial recognition are often used in contexts where um, you know they're being used on people who are already uh, vulnerable already discriminated against um, and when the, the technology is less accurate for those individuals that's when you've got a whole uh, you know list of potential human rights risks so uh, just you know by way of example uh, there was a case a couple of years ago in Detroit in the US where uh, police were using facial recognition to try and identify 
uh, a criminal suspect and the technology actually identified the wrong individual and he was a you know an african-american man um you know with with black skin uh, and we know that these cohorts of individuals are often much more you know policed and patrolled anyway uh, and so that actually led to a, a false arrest of an individual um this is just an aside i used to teach and i used to teach uh, a lot of people from different backgrounds you know from south america right across Pakistan and a whole range. And I, I found that I had a special gift. I could actually identify the people in my classes. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but one of the things that was odd to me was that I had a confusion about two people and because they had such similar faces. One of them was from Pakistan and one was from Chile. Which I thought was it taught me a lesson that uh, around um, and it makes that's why I found the facial recognition thing very interesting because I wondered if computers had the same problem. That is really interesting, um, and and yes, I mean I guess what we've found um, that up until this point, these technologies have traditionally been, uh, well, I guess the ones that are, are being used in um, in Australia and, and Europe and, and the states have been developed by predominantly white individuals and often, you know, white men working in um, Silicon Valley or other kind of tech hubs around the world. And the data that the, te- the technology is being trained on is not representative of the whole world and, and doesn't take into account that diversity and those those nuances between um, between humans. Um, and I think that also kind of speaks to the nature of the facial recognition technology as well, is that the human face is so special for a number of different reasons. You know, it's, it's not only, um, you know, your unique kind of biometric identifier that you can't change very easily, unlike a password, but it's also how we relate human to human and how we, um, you know, understand how we're feeling and, and, and those sorts of things. So there's a whole range of different issues all caught up in, in the facial recognition conversation. Let's have a look at the uh, model uh, law that, that you're talking about and around the um, issues that you believe you need to contend with in order to have some fairness in this? Yeah, so so coming to the, the, the model law exactly, we've tried to come up with a framework that can mean that Australia would be able to benefit from the good uses of the technology um, and also protect Australians from, from those negative risks. And the way that we've done that um, is through a risk assessment process, which ultimately would determine, you know, whether each different use is um, base or elevated or high risk. And then from that, there'd be different sorts of um, legal requirements that stem from that. Which is which is very similar to an OH&S uh, risk analysis arrangement. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a number of different areas where, um, you know, in regulation or other kind of policies where the risk-based approach um, is what we're quite used to because, you know, it, it's it's a bit more nuanced than putting blanket bans on, on particular uses. It means that we can actually start having a bit more of a sophisticated conversation about all these different types of the technology. Well, I actually wrote down something from your report, but a risk-based approaches to regulation can help manage uncertainty across systems as a whole rather than dealing with individual cases of harm after they have occurred. Absolutely. That, that's actually that's a really good point that you've pulled out there. And, and that was really what, um, I guess, drove us 
to to come up with this approach is that we and as has already been you know the case around the world is that we're already seeing harms come from the use of facial recognition technology and as this technology is becoming more and more ubiquitous and more and more rolled out um, around Australia and around other parts of the world, we don't want to get to a point where all of these harms are occurring and we're responding to them after they've happened. So by mitigating the risks and, and taking that sort of approach, we're um, making sure that we can stop those harms before they're occurring. You have a, a an example in the report around the notion that um some software that's been developed in, you know, laboratory conditions, as it were, even they will come up with, say, 0.01% error. And you, mm. and if in the in the real world that is amplified, so the example you give, if they're going through the um, airport in Sydney and uh, they make that kind of a level of error say, a million people go through there and that would equal 10,000 people with uh, a significant error involved. So there are things that need to be dealt with, um, even if it is an efficiency tool. Um, you, uh, Your analysis is a risk-based approach tied to international human rights law. So can you talk to that? Yeah, so when we were doing our research for putting together this law, we'd spent a lot of time early on looking at what was, um, you know, perhaps uh, had been tried in other parts of the world around facial recognition. Um, and I guess the different approaches that some countries are taking is either um, the, you know, do nothing approach, which is sort of similar to what Australia has done up until this point, where we've got a number of existing laws, such as the Privacy Act, that aren't specifically tailored to facial recognition, but, you know, they cover some of the issues there. So, I mean, that's one approach. You know, the, the next approach is just a, a moratorium or a blanket ban on the use of facial recognition in different contexts. Um, but what we were trying to do is say, okay, there's actually a better way of doing this by creating a specific law and, and how should we frame that? And, um, you know, I come from a human rights background and so there's another one of our co-authors and we found that this uh, framework is actually a really robust way of, of looking at the, the opportunities and the risks um, and also a way of doing it that this could uh, in fact be adaptable in other parts of the world as well. And so we were, you know, throughout our consultation process, we've involved a number of different international voices and the language of human rights and, and international human rights law is something that is um, uh you know, recognised globally. And so in terms of having a law that, that could be applied to different jurisdictions, um, it's been a good way forward. Well, it is, it's really very interesting because, of course, um, doing policy and doing laws and uh, is a very practical thing. And as you point out, privacy isn't an absolute human right. So what you're talking about is trading off levels of human right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, and we sort of talk about that in the model law is that when we were coming up with our risk levels, there there's no such thing as a, a zero risk use of facial recognition. Um, we call the, the, the bottom, uh, you know, the, the, the least risky um, uh, version as a, as a base level risk, because as you say, there's always um, going to be a trade-off 
um, usually with, with privacy, uh, when you're using facial recognition. So there should always be some base level protections that are embedded in any kind of system, even if the facial recognition is, um, you know, it's fairly low risk. Mm. And if we go back to the issue of uh, Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows, um, you took, you have this distinction about uh, outcomes for individuals that have legal ramifications or have um, basic uh, infringements on their uh, freedom. Yeah, so um, I guess what you're talking to there is the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of how the model law would work. And so we've come up with... Um, there's about five different key elements that we think are really crucial for um, developers or deployers of this technology and what they need to think about before they before they develop the technology or, or you know use it on Australians. So this idea of the spatial context of where the technology is going to be used, is it going to be in the public? Is it for personal use? Um, the type of facial recognition. So there's three different types of what we were talking about before where um, facial verification is lower risk, um, definitely lower risk than identification or, or facial analysis. Um, and we've also got to take into account things like the performance of the technology. Um, and again, like you were just saying, whether or not there's an actual decision and, and particularly a legal um, or a similarly significant decision being made about an individual and also consent. You talk a lot about um, open and clear consent from the people that it's being done to. Absolutely, yeah. And consent often comes up um, time and time again as being one of the really pivotal areas of, of this conversation. Um, and that's where we can see with, um, with Choice and um, with Bunnings where there was such a big problem because whilst they were saying, oh, look, we, we, you know, we did put up a notice. It was in the, you know, in the corner on your way in. That's not really real consent. You know, just being able to notify someone without a guarantee that they've actually read that information and been able to um, make an informed decision about whether or not they want to engage with that technology. Um, you know, that, that, that's not real consent. So we've had a lot of conversations in our consultation around um, the idea of, of giving really free and informed consent. And if you don't want to consent to using that technology, then you shouldn't be, um, you know, discriminated against or um, have any kind of a detriment. You should still be able to access goods and services um, in other ways if you don't want to engage with the facial recognition. Just as a matter of interest, do you know why they wanted to do facial recognition? My understanding is that they, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there are a few different reasons. My understanding is that it was um, a, a loss or a theft prevention mechanism for some of these commercial entities. So, you know, I, I guess the next stage up from the old fashioned, you know, watch out for this customer kind of thing, because they've, you know, tried to shoplift in the, in the past and having, you know, a picture behind the front counter that this was actually being used instead as a as a way to identify, um, you know, problem problem customers. Um, but again, that, that might have been different from um, organisation to organisation. The, what, what was it, uh, Clearview AI, is that the name of the company in America that... Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a very interesting uh, case study where they actually scraped a whole lot of uh, images from Facebook and other social media outlets. Makes you wonder what... Um, and it was disallowed without anybody's consent for them to have because they were creating a bank of images. It makes you wonder what mm. uh, what, what um, 
the bank of images for Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows is. <laughs> are they actively yeah, collecting? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are definitely a lot of questions around um, what was in that database and, and you know, whether that they were images that they had collected previously from, from customers or whether they were using another security tool. Um, yeah, there's not, not a lot of clarity um, out about that. Mm. But you, you're, you're calling for the uh, Attorney General to uh, take some steps, aren't you? You think that that would be a good way to go? Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, that's been a big part of um, this whole project since we started at the beginning of the year was making sure that we were bringing um, everyone along on the journey, at least keeping them informed. And, and um, we've had a lot of conversations with government departments and, and also members of parliament throughout the process. And ideally, we, we think it's really necessary that um, the government takes this forward uh, as a as a, you know, pivotal reform agenda, really. Um, there's also a, a separate process of review at, underway at the moment with the Australian Privacy Act. And so we think that this could actually fit in quite nicely with that process. Um, but absolutely, we think that um, with the amount um, of speed with which this technology is evolving, it's um, it's really crucial that, that the government takes this seriously and, and comes up with some new and robust laws for Australia. Lauren Perry from UTS, that's the University of Technology, Sydney, about a recent report that they've put together and the model law that they think is a good idea to uh, curtail any of the less than savoury aspects of the use of facial recognition technologies. So that was Annie from Solidarity Breakfast speaking with Lauren Perry from UTS about facial recognition technology. Uh, Next up, we're going to play you a track by Milan Ring. Uh, This is her 2021 single, and she actually, over the weekend, was the opening act for Leon Bridges at Hamer Hall. Today's hurts can disappear Cause we can make it right 
past time So running blind, our love won't die Over now when angels fly We'll lead this war and still unite the track process by Milan Ring. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Program. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, next up, we are going to play for you uh, an interview with RMIT professor Libby Porter, who introduces Tina uh, Grandinetti in a conversation from the Forum for Dwelling Justice held at the Capitol Theatre here in Nam in August. And joining us virtually, Dr. Tina Grandinetti is an Uchinachu woman living on Kanaka Maoli lands in occupied Hawaii. Her research aims to advance housing justice by reframing housing and home through the lens of aloha aina. She's been active in the fight for a demilitarised future for the Pacific, and she is currently Chief of Staff uh, for Representative Amy Peruso in the Hawaii House of Representatives. Uh First, thank you so much for having me. It is such a privilege to be Zooming um, into Wurundjeri lands. I am, as Libby mentioned, a Uchinanchu woman, uh, Indigenous Okinawan woman born and raised here on Kanaka Maoli lands in occupied Hawaii. Uh, my research and more recently my policy work is about the violence of property and the ways that Kanaka and working class settlers have responded to really intensifying housing precarity here in Hawaii. But my activism and organizing has largely centered around demilitarizing Hawaii, in part because my homelands in Okinawa are similarly occupied, desecrated, and contaminated by the U.S. military. 
So when I think about the struggle to dwell in Hawaii and how it's being experienced in this very moment, I think about two crises uh, that are plastered on newspaper headlines every single day. Um, the first is the affordable housing crisis, which is usually communicated in figures like half of Hawaii residents are struggling to get by, half of Hawaii's houseless are Native Hawaiians, houseless in their own homeland. The median home price has reached over $1 million and nearly a quarter of home purchases were made by out-of-state buyers. And finally, that we need to build 65,000 homes in order to meet demand and ostensibly lower housing costs. The second crisis is the Red Hill water crisis, which began in November of last year when thousands of gallons of jet fuel stored in the U.S. Navy's Red Hill fuel facility leaked uh, into Oahu's sole source aquifer, poisoning thousands of families who lived on the Navy's waterline and cutting urban Oahu's water supply by 20%, potentially forever. As Kanaka Maoli scholar Dr. Kalihua Krug has said, the Red Hill fuel leak is the closest we've come to watching an island die. Yet to this day, the Navy still has not shut down the facility and 100 million gallons of fuel are sitting in corroded tanks just 100 feet above our aquifer, which is a kinolau or a physical manifestation of the god Kane. So it's sacred water, of course. Uh, both of these violences are treated as acute crises that conveniently demand a reinforcement of the very same systems that cause them. So to solve the housing crisis, we need to help developers build us out of it by incentivizing construction and deregulating planning and land use. To solve the Red Hill crisis, sorry, I'm going to pause because a military uh, jet is flying overhead right now. I'm not sure if you can hear it. Um, there we go. To solve the Red Hill crisis, we need to lobby the federal government to give the Department of Defense millions of taxpayer dollars to clean up their mess on top of their $773 billion annual budget. But we know that these crises are products of longstanding and interlocking systems of oppression. Settler colonial capitalism and military occupation in Hawaii have worked together since 1893 when American-born sugar barons overthrew Hawaii's queen with the help of the U.S. Marines, which had um, pointed their gunships at the Iolani Palace. So the struggle to dwell in Hawaii takes place in the context of these two predatory systems. Of course, people experience this struggle very, very differently according to their different positionalities across race and class. But at the root of this violence are systems that seek to eradicate the familial and reciprocal relationship that Kanaka Maoli share with the aina, or the land, or that which feeds. Settler colonial capitalism looks at Hawaii and sees profit. Militarism looks at Hawaii and sees a weapon of war for profit. So what does it look and feel like on the ground? I, I know we're running short on time, so I, I don't want to talk about my research. I actually, also because I know borders are opening and I bet that more than a few people in this room are maybe planning a vacation to Hawaii. I wanna use my time to share a moment that I've thought about every single day for the last couple of months. So one evening I was on a Zoom, Zoom meeting, we were organizing around the Red Hill crisis and it was after work. So I called in while I was taking my evening walk down to Waikiki 
which is a world famous tourism destination and our densest tourism hub. So through my headphones, we're talking about the, the recent announcement that Oahu residents were being asked to voluntarily cut our water usage by 10% to avoid over pumping that could suck the fuel plume from the Navy's well towards civilian pumping stations. If the fuel got into civilian distribution pipes, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of homes could become unlivable um, because petroleum would sink into the PVC pipes. Um, so I, I'm in this conversation and I'm looking around me and I see just thousands of tourists. Those are just a fraction of the 10 million who visit here annually compared to our population of 1.4 million. Each one of them, I assumed, was oblivious to the everyday violence felt by the people of Hawaii. Their hotel pools were full while we were questioning the ability of our island to sustain life with a poisoned water supply. And they were cushioned from the harsh realities of dwelling precarity by an ordin a city ordinance known as the sit-lie ban, which criminalizes houselessness by making it illegal for people to sit, lie, or store possessions on the sidewalks of Waikiki. And remember that half of all houseless people in Hawaii are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. So I just remember fighting back tears. In Olalo Hawaii or Hawaiian language, Waikiki means spouting waters. It's named for the springs that fed these abundant wetlands that were dredged and infilled to create a tourist dream world and actually an R&R dream world for American soldiers. And if we really reflect on that name, I think we can see how dwelling injustice really begins with the transformation of aina or land. The spouting waters are dredged over and then contaminated, the kanaka who malamad or cared for them displaced, and then the tourists and settlers and military welcomed. And then somehow the violence still gets packaged as paradise and people still buy it, making the struggle to dwell even harder. And yeah, I think I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Technically, we have run out of time for a conversation. However, I just want to pose one very small question to each of you and ask if you would answer it as best you can in about 10 words. We've talked about institutions and accountability and relationship and attachment and those things. Given that each of us work in big colonial institutions, we work in deeply colonising violent spaces of knowledge making and, and so on. What do you each find, uh, and I find it tremendously difficult often being in those spaces and I'm sure you share that too, and I say that as someone who carries phenomenal privilege through all of that, um, and that's an important part of that conversation. Uh, where do each of you locate, not hope, but where do you find your most energy driving moments of resistance where you want to give your energy to things? What, what, where is that for each of you in your work? Tina? Yes. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've spent the last two years working in the Hawaii State Legislature. I do not see any transformational change happening there. I think of it as a necessary place for people to hold the line and minimize the harm that's done by the settler state and sound the alarm to people on the ground when something really bad is coming down the line. But the times that I feel most motivated and energized 
our moments when we're on like a front line. Uh, I mentioned a Kanaka leader who said that the Red Hill crisis is the closest we, we've come to watching our island die. But in response to that, Hawaiian leaders held a 10 day occupation of the entrance to the US Navy headquarters. Um, and those days I felt so energized. And I think what I'm what I really struggle with is learn is or what I hope we can get better at is creating those same spaces on a more sustained basis and carrying that energy and those relationships through to our everyday lives. So, um, so not just allowing them to exist in pockets of crisis, but uh, but bringing them into the structures of our of our daily lives. So uh, we just listened to a conversation between RMIT professor uh, Libby Porter and Tina Grandinetti um, from the Forum for Dwelling Justice held at the Capitol Theatre in NAM um, in August. It was organised by RMIT's Research Centre for Urban Research um, and was supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. If you want more information on it, um, you can go to cur.org.au slash events slash dwelling dash justice. Next up, we're going to play uh, the Disrupt Land Forces Anthem. For all those who stand with um, what Disrupt Land Forces stands for, um, to protect people and country, um, and this track is by Mano de Bango, The Black Brothers, Elf Transporter, MC Izzy, Zelda Da, and Poro Bibi. Killing, exporting terror. We're out here. We're gonna end it. The war, gonna hit 
Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. 
Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, uh, and just before those messages there, we were listening to the Disrupt Land Forces anthem. Um, if you did want to listen to that, it's at disruptlandforces.org uh, slash disruptlandforces song. So next up, we have an interview. Um, we've got Auntie Sue Col- coleman Hasseldin on the line. Um, Auntie Sue is a Kokatha woman who lives in Sejuna in South Australia. She is a nuclear test survivor and outspoken advocate of Ab- Aboriginal culture and environmental protection. She's also co-president of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance and an ICANN ambassador. She's joining us on the show this morning to talk about her activism and the ongoing testing on her land. Welcome to the show, Auntie Sue. Thank you for having me. Um, So you've spent years campaigning against nuclear weapons testing because of your own experience as a child at Kuniba Mission, where the British carried out nuclear testing. Um, You know, can you tell us just a little bit about how this impacted you and your community? Yes, um, the nuclear tests were actually carried out for the northwest of where I was born, but um, we got the so-called Nullarbor dust storms, which were actually the radiation fallouts coming to us. The wind brought the radiation fallouts to our country and to our people, and as a result of that, you know, we've had so many cancers and deaths and deformities and all sorts of horrible, you know, medical health issues going on. We've had no answers. We haven't been listened to. And that was 70-odd years ago now. But now, today, we have a different threat for country. It's called Southern Launch. They're a rocket launching company. And they've um, teamed up with the weapons people called Thales, Thales, company and um, their aim is guided missiles but you know where are they going to aim those guided missiles on our country this is going to be the second time that our country is going to be really impacted just through war games I guess you want to call them but they don't seem to care they don't I haven't spoken to them they haven't spoken to me they speak to a few of our our people, and they class that as consultation with Aboriginal people. And, you know, they're just totally ignoring the people that want to save land and culture. Where where these people are intending to land their rockets or drop their payloads or whatever they want to do, we have sacred women's sites out there. And we've been struggling and struggling now to, to look after them and keep them 
you know, as they should be kept because we work with seven sisters and um, these people don't care, neither do the, the certain Aboriginal people they talk to. They, they Just so long as they've got a few people on board, they don't care about anybody else. And, um, yeah, the struggle will go on. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how, um, you know, Southern Launch are partnering with Dallas, who are one of the world's largest arms sellers, and they're at this year's Land Forces Expo. Um, but, you know, instead of changing their practices or listening to members of the community like yourself, who've been extremely vocal over the years, they just have been doing things like, um, you know, on their website, they put up uh, reconciliation action plans that claim to support First Nations employees and things like that, rather than, um, you know, make any actual yeah. difference. You know? the- they claim all sorts of things. They claim, you know, you see their advertisements, they're playing with little kids with paper rockets. Yeah. You know, just using little Aboriginal children to further their own horrible needs. And it's it's quite sad to see little kids are so, so gullible, of course. You know, they think they're having a heck of a good time with these little paper rockets, not realising that they're being used. Uh, you know, it's all about money. We understand that. And a lot of our people have never had money as such, big money. So all it needs is these people to come along and say, I'll give you a few grand and, you know, you sign this. And But what our people are not stopping to think either is that once they sell the land, they'll spend their money and then they'll look back and they've got nothing. They've got no culture. They can't have culture if they want to sell out anyway. But, you know, it's just total destruction that's going to go on and when they destroy the land, they actually destroy us because we, we, we don't own that land. That land owns us. It directs us. It feeds us. You know, it does everything for us. Like on that country out the back, it's, it's our church, our grocery shop, our butcher shop, our pharmacy. You know, it's our school. We teach our kids all about surviving in the bush and about respecting each other and taking care of each other. You know, without that land, we've, we're buggered. We've just got to live in a little corner of a so-called civilised world. But we need that land because, because our bodies and our minds, we need it. We, we can't afford to let these people destroy it. Yeah, and that's right. And we've, as you've said, we've seen the effects this can have not only on um, the health of local communities but um, connection to culture and, you know, to use those photos and, and, um, you know, misdirect people on their website and create this image that's not true. Um, Yeah, it's it's really um, harmful and destructive as well. Very. Um, Here in Brisbane at the moment, at the Disrupt Land Forces, and... um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to look Thales, Thales. I think I'm just going to call them Thales from now on. It's easier. <laughs> That's what I was calling uh, them too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to look Thales people in the eye and the Southern Launch people and say to ask them, why? Why do you want to do this? You've got Woomera Rocket Range where, you've, where it's already devastated country. Why do you want to come into our country now and join it up with Woomera Rocket Range? so that this is whole, whole heap of Aboriginal country will be 
unaccessible. We won't be able to go out there because it's it's going to be a rocket range. And, you know, we don't even know what they're firing off or anything because they don't talk to us. They talk to a few, you know, CEOs and a few board members and that's their consultation with Aboriginal people. Yeah. And this is all of them. This is sales, Southern Launch, mining companies. They don't want anybody who's going to say, no, we, we need that country for us, not for you to rape. Yeah, and you've spoken out before against companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin as well, who are, all make um, nuclear weapons and will be at the Land Forces Expo in 2022. Yeah, um, it's been a hard, long road, but it's, you know, we've learnt a lesson that wasn't ours you know, to start with, but we learnt from this nuclear um, atomic bomb testing the British and Australian governments did we saw the devastation that's happened and still happening to this day. But, you know, these people are not learning anything. They just want to keep going. <clears throat> and not one of them care about the animals. Now, they, Southern Launch says that the country at the back is uninhabited. Well, that's not true because we're always going out on country. We don't need permission to do so. We go out, we look after special places, clean water holes, look after animals. But the animals out there, you know, they, they don't care that they're destroying them. The birds, the lizards, the dingoes, you know, that's their country too. And, and, and people like Southern Launch and Sales don't care. Yeah, that's exactly right. To say it's uninhabited is just simply not true. <laughs> Why, how can they get away with all these lies? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, you're in Mianjin at the moment where Disrupt Land Forces is happening. Um, so, you know, it's really important to that you've come on um, air this morning and, you know, brought, brought attention to this issue and, and told your story, which you've been telling for the last few years. Um, and you've been campaigning for Australia to sign on to a nuclear ban treaty as well. Can you talk to us a bit about why this is so important? Um, yeah, I, I, Australia is but like they're, they're pretty good at saying we don't have nuclear weapons. They're about to change that anyway with their submarines. But, um, you know, we supply the uranium. Did anybody ask us if we wanted to supply uranium that was going to go over and devastate other countries? No, they didn't. They just took and turned it into, you know, weapons of destruction against other countries. But then they used weapons of destruction against us too. So, you know, listening to to um, servicemen that served up at Maralinga, the, the government's British didn't care about their own people. So, you know, the Aboriginal people had no hope. If they couldn't care about their own service people, we were just there. Anyway, we were still flora and fauna up until 60-something. You know, we didn't have any say. No rights to vote, no right. We still got no rights, actually, to say no. Yeah, and, you know, this is a really um, stark example of what you're saying, where you are someone from the land, you're speaking out, you've been speaking internationally for years, uh, and, you know, like you're saying, um, 
the consultation is very performative rather than anything real. It's not real. Um, and you ask questions at any consultations and you don't even get answered. You just get dismissed. So consultations to me are nothing. They shouldn't even be happening. That They should just, like like my old auntie used to say, Manda Yamuruilika, let's leave the land as it is. And that land is there. Like, like I keep saying, the future is not ours, you know. It belongs to the next generation. And the next generation wants, need animals in their world. It can't be total destruction where, what have they got? They've got nothing to look forward to. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and hopefully, you know, having something like Disrupt Land Forces will make a difference. Um, and, you know, having people like you speak out will make a difference for the next generations in particular. Um, Auntie Sue, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and raising awareness about this. And thank you for listening. So that was um, Auntie Sue um, calling in from Mianjin, where Disrupt Land Forces is happening all this week, um, talking to us about her activism in the anti-nuclear space um, and, you know, what the importance of listening to Aboriginal communities in particular. Uh, we'll be back with our next conversation with Caitlin McGrain right after this. There's kind of a lot of... A lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio Goongo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. 
Caitlin McGrain is a project manager at Gender Equity Victoria and PhD candidate at the Digital Ethnography Research Centre. Caitlin joins us this morning to talk about Defining Equity, GenVic's annual conference, where local and global experts come together to talk about how to create lasting change in gender equity. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for chatting with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the aims of this year's uh, Defining Equity conference? Of course. So Defining Equity is a conference that GenVic puts on every year and the aims each year are to kind of take stock of what is happening in the gender equity movement in Victoria, but also across the country as well. So this year we're focusing on looking at the impacts of the Gender Equality Act that was brought into effect, I think, last year. Oh, no, 2020, sorry. And um, we'll be sort of looking at how that's affected the public sector and then how the the sort of the ripple effects of that kind of piece of legislation into other areas as well. So thinking about um, gender equal health, what is it? What does a gender equal health strategy look like in Victoria, given what we've just seen during the pandemic and what we're continuing to see? Um, and the ways that sort of public health policy is gendered in these really specific ways that actually have a re- can have a really devastating impact on sort of already marginalised communities and groups. So that's one of the other topics that we'll be talking about. Um, My area of expertise is gendered online harassment and safety. So on my panel, we'll be talking about, I mean, there's so much to be talking about. I've just written a report on gendered online harassment in politics that was conducted, um, I conducted some research at the end of last year. But what we've been seeing, I think, in the last few months is this real kind of awareness and shifting shifting levels of awareness about the impacts of sort of everyday data surveillance, everyday data gathering on um, people's lives. And I think if we think about the Optus breach that we've just seen, that kind of like really serious impact. And I think the gendered implications of things like that are really yet to be seen. So that's what we'll be talking about on that panel, which is really exciting. And then the final sort of major theme is a, a kind of like a piece of a piece of work that Genvic's been doing, looking at commemorative justice. So, you know, in Victoria and around Australia, we have all these monuments to various important quote like um, inverted commas, right? Like these important people, and one of the things that Genvic is doing is looking at who gets memorialised and who gets um, and what that kind of symbolises and what and what kinds of power structures and power relations um, are embedded in place names and um, you know thinking about the the renaming of Marunda Hospital and that sort of thing. So sort of really taking this like critical approach to thinking about who, who gets memorialised, who gets. Uh, commemorated and how do we address how do we redress that balance so that's really exciting I think to sort of see that movement happening happening in Victoria. Mm. And we understand that this year's themes are safety and respect, gender equal economics, gender equal health, strengthening and sorry rather strengthening the gender equity sector. Can you talk us through these key themes that will be covered in the conference? 
Yeah, sure. So I think these three, these themes are kind of really critical to the gender equity movement as a whole. And they're kind of, they're really important to thinking about how we actually create a gender equal society. And I think that what what this conference does is it actually makes it really practical. It makes it really clear that this isn't a kind of a purely ideological shift. This is actually a practice-based shift as well, that we have to actually practice different ways of doing and being. And part of that is looking at like these massive areas of our lives, like health, economic justice, safety and respect. Like These are huge topics and huge themes. And so what I like about the, what I'm sort of really excited by, by by defining equity is that it breaks those themes down into something that's really practical. So we're not just talking about like theoretically changing society. It's what is actually happening on the ground. What are people actually doing? Yeah, great. And um, here on Tuesday Breakfast, we have previously spoken to you and Lizzie O'Shea mm-hmm. about the gendered cyber hate and the online safety bill, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, what discussions can we expect from your panel, Safety and Respect, Gendered Cyber Hate, Democracy and Representation? So there'll be a few different things that we'll be talking about. I am so excited to talk about this research that I've done with uh, people working in politics in Victoria, looking at gendered online harassment that they experience, and how that could be, and how that needs to be mitigated and prevented in workplaces. So, Lizzie, I think, will be talking about uh, resisting techno solutionism. So, you know, what are the alternative ways of? thinking about and moderating and managing the internet that don't rely on invasive surveillance or uh, proactive monitoring of digital communication. Like, what are the ways that we can be addressing safety and respect online that aren't to do with infringing on people's rights to privacy and that sort of thing. So I think there's, there's, there's so much to talk about in this in this big topic, but um, I think it'd be really good to hear from all of the panellists. I think especially people like um, Catherine Arndt and Pamela Anderson from the VLGA and Emily's List, respectively, will be talking more about sort of how do we get more women and gender-diverse people into positions of... Um, into positions of governance. So how do we get people to kind of stand in elections and what do we do to make them safer once they get there? Because one of the things that we found in, or Jendik found in in our research, is that it's it's not just about getting more women into politics. It's not just about getting more women into parliament or more women into local government. It's actually about making sure that once people are in those positions, that they feel confident and safe and respected while they're doing their job. And that's something that really has to be everybody's responsibility. Everybody who works in that sector has to take responsibility for contributing to a culture of safety and contributing to a culture of respect. And so that's there's some of the there's some of the broad the broad things we'll be talking about. Mm, no, it sounds like it's gonna be a really brilliant panel. 
Um, I hope so. Yeah. And we know that access to public health services is an ongoing challenge for women in this country. There will be a panel on gender, equal health and public health, pandemics and beyond. Could you tell us a bit about this panel um, and just the importance of keeping this topic in the spotlight, particularly in the wake of the pandemic? I mean, I think we, so many of us were kind of horrified by the decision earlier in the week to remove the isolation requirements for people who've been diagnosed with or people who've tested positive for COVID. Um, And so one of the things that this panel is going to be talking about is the ways that kind of women's health and um, the the health of gender diverse people is kind of made invisible in some of these and the kind of inequalities that are made invisible through these kinds of decisions and what we need to be doing to not just keep them visible but also be addressing the consequences and addressing some of the um, addressing some of the sort of policy and legislative changes that need to happen to make sure that women and gender diverse people are healthy and happy and able to live kind of filling healthy lives. So that's sort of talking to people like Jackson Fairchild, who's the uh, co-director of the of Rainbow Health Australia. So sort of really putting a like very gendered lens on onto this issue of public health. And also I'm very excited to see that Renee Barker-Mulholland, who is um, she's First Nations feminist on social media and sort of talking to her about the sort of particularly racialized impacts of public health policy through the pandemic, but also in other, in so many other areas as well. Thank you. And finally, where can people go uh, to register for the event and to find out more information? So you can head to the Gender Equity Victoria website. That's genvic.org.au. And there'll be a link to register on our website. There's also loads of links all over social media that you can find for GenVic is at uh, Gender Equity Vic on Twitter and we have been tweeting about it non-stop for ages but I would just say the tickets are like the sales are closing I think tomorrow morning so the conference is tomorrow so you can still um, you can still register I think in the morning tomorrow but getting in early would be really good. Yeah, great. Well, Caitlin, thanks so much um, for taking the time to have a chat with us. It sounds like this is going to be a really fantastic conference for women and gender diverse people. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we look forward to hearing about it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Caitlin. That was Caitlin McGrain from Gender Equity Victoria speaking to us about their conference, Defining Equity. Just a reminder that this is a virtual event that will take place tomorrow, Wednesday, the 5th of October from 9.15am to 4.20pm. You'll find the link to this event on the Tuesday Breakfast website later this morning um, and we'll be back to wrap up the show after this announcement. You're listening to 3CR 855am, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. 
genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and we've come to the end of our show this morning. Um, we had a big show today, uh, starting off with replaying a conversation Annie from Solidarity Breakfast had with Lauren Perry from UTS about um, facial recognition technology. We then uh, played a conversation between RMIT professor Libby Porter and Tina Grandinetti um, from the Forum for Dwelling Justice. Uh, and if you wanted to know more about that one, it is at cur.org.au slash events slash dwelling justice. Um, we then heard from Auntie Sue Coleman Hasseldean about uh, at nuclear testing on her land, um, which has been ongoing in various forms since uh, the 50s and 60s. Um, and Auntie, uh, Auntie Sue is at the Disrupt Land Forces uh, happening in Mianjin this week and was speaking to us from there, um, talking to us about the importance of anti-weapons act- activism and especially listening to First Nations voices in this space. And we ended with an interview just then with Caitlin McGrain, um, who is project manager at Gender Equity Victoria. Um, And she was just talking to us about uh, GenVic's annual conference, where local and global experts come together to talk about how to create lasting change in gender equity. So... Uh, great show this morning, and as always, keep it locked to 3CR. Tune into um, all the breakfast shows all through this week. Um, as we said earlier in the show, we will be covering various content um, from Disrupt Land Forces happening in Mianjin at 8 a.m. Um, all week on breakfast. So definitely tune in, and as always, keep it locked to 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.